had some tif- technical difficulties uh, yesterday here at the bridge, and so I don't think anyone online was able to see the sermon, so we're, we're recording it here on, on Monday afternoon. So I'm going to get to have direct eye contact with you, <laughs> even though I don't know who you are, where you're coming from, but you're, I'm going to be looking right into the camera here. So uh, that's kind of why we're doing this a, a little bit different today. We're, we're talking about 1 Corinthians 13 today. This is This is the love chapter. This is the wedding chapter. This is one of the most well-known, well-loved chapters in all the Bible. I have a world religions textbook on my shelf that has a list of the, uh, the scriptures that it thinks are the most central to Christian faith. And you can bet your baby, baby bottom teeth, I don't know if that's a saying or not, but you can bet that, that this passage is, is one of those. When I was 11 years old, actually, my parents made me memorize this passage. And the reason was because there was a local summer Bible camp where if, you, uh, if, if the kid recited a certain passage of scripture, to the camp director, you actually got to go for free. And if you know anything about Mennonites, which uh, my parents are, and I am by ethnicity as well, you'll know that the most holy words outside of Scripture are, it's for sale. <laughs> if, you, if, you could t- if there's a deal for the taking, you, you take it. So I had to memorize this passage, had no idea what most of it meant, but my parents didn't have to pay for, uh, for summer camp that year. Now, I, I said that this is the, the wedding passage, because if statistics were kept, and I don't know if they are on things like this, but if they were, I'm fairly certain this passage would be the most common, most popular passage recited at Christian weddings. But what I think often gets missed at weddings, and just about anywhere else 1 Corinthians 13 is referenced, is the context of this chapter. And and if you've been with us during this sermon series at the bridge, you'll know the context, that it's all about, it's all about gifts. It's all about the gifts of the Spirit. Here's the context in, in, in Corinth again. You've got these Corinthian believers who are filled with the Holy Spirit, given gifts by the Holy Spirit, and they've latched on to one of these especially, one of these gifts, the gift of speaking in tongues, and they have given it this exalted status where to be truly spiritual is to speak in tongues. And and so this this spiritual gift has become an avenue for pride and and self-seeking, status-seeking behavior instead of benefiting others. And so Paul tells them, look, here's what the gifts are all about. Chapter 12, he talks about how the gifts are all about Jesus, about making him known, about serving others. He paints this this image of the human body, which is like the church in in terms of having all of these different gifts and, and abilities and empowerments, but all united with the same purpose of strengthening and building up the body. Paul, at the very end of chapter 12, after going through all of that, says, Now eagerly desire the greater gifts. And he immediately follows up on that by saying, I will show you the most excellent way. And then he launches into this exalted poetic praise of love. So how do you know which gifts are greater? Well, that's measured by love. What's the motivation to be in desiring those gifts? Well, the motivation is to be love. How do you exercise those gifts? You exercise them in love. See, the the spiritual gifts are all about love. And Paul hasn't really used the L word yet, but that's what he's been alluding to this whole time. He gets really direct here in 1 Corinthians 13. So let's pray, and then we're going to dive in. So Lord Jesus, I want to pray 
for all of those who will be uh, listening uh, to this, Lord, that you would speak to them. That you would open up your word to them. And that you would show them, Lord, who you are and how you've called them to live. So I want to invite you, Holy Spirit, to work in all of those lives who will hear this message. In Jesus' name, amen. 1 Corinthians 13, we'll start in verse 1. Paul writes, If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I'm nothing. If I give all that I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. So here's Paul giving essentially another gift list. He's given us a couple of these lists already in 1 Corinthians. This is, a, this is another one, uh, and, and he kind of talks about them in their most extreme idealized version. He says, if, if I speak in the tongues of men or of angels. Now those are two different ways of understanding the gift of tongues. In Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost, which many churches celebrated this past Sunday, uh, the disciples are gathered together, the Holy Spirit comes on them, and they speak about Jesus in languages that people can understand, but that they themselves haven't learned. That would be the gift of speaking in tongues of men. But the gift that the Corinthians are really hyped up on is a little bit different than that. Because it's, it's unintelligible speech. It's, it's sounds, it's words that other people can't understand. And Paul may be alluding to that as angelic speech. He says in Romans 8 that uh, the Spirit intercedes for us in our weakness with groans that words can't express. And some scholars think that's the same kind of thing as being mentioned here. There's this like angelic heavenly speech that the Holy Spirit empowers believers to speak. It's pretty incredible. Paul then talks about, imagine if you had the gift of prophecy. We've talked about this over the last couple of weeks. Prophecy is, is uh, giving people a revelation from God into a particular situation or concern. And here Paul says, imagine if you could explain all, all mysteries, if you could fathom all knowledge. I mean, that would be incredible, right? If God just made clear to you everything possible, you know, you could tell people what they had for breakfast last week. You could, you could tell people who's going to win the Stanley Cup. I'm going to throw something out there. It's probably not going to be the Edmonton Oilers. You could, you could explain to people the mystery of why country music is so awful. How is it possible for it to be so bad? I don't know. But you could explain this. Really going at the Albertans here. I'm really sorry about that. But, uh, but of course, this would, this would apply to much greater, more significant things than that. Where just everything you, 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 are, you know, all mysteries, all knowledge. Incredible. Paul talks about a faith that can move mountains. Jesus in the Gospels, he talks about uh, having faith so much that you could tell a mountain be thrown into the sea and it happens. Imagine having a faith like that, a faith that not only trusts that something like that could happen, but actually sees it happen. A faith that gives rise to miracles like that. And, and then Paul talks about a couple of different gifts that he hasn't really mentioned before. He talks about if, if I give all that I possess to the poor. Now everybody, of course, is called to, to live generously, to give. 
But Romans, Romans 12 does talk about the gift of giving as a particular spiritual empowerment God gives to some people to give sacrificially and generously beyond compare. Paul says, imagine you do that and, and imagine you actually give your body over to hardship. And there's some implication here that it may involve death even. That you are not just giving your possessions, your money, but giving your own body, giving your own life. I mean, imagine giving that sacrificially, that generously, and to do it joyfully. Imagine that. All of these things that Paul talks about are astounding, incredible, supernatural things. They're the kinds of abilities that people write sci-fi movie scripts about, right? They're astounding. But then Paul says something even more astounding. He says, if I have any of these things, if I can do any of these things, but I don't have love, it's nothing. I am nothing. I'm no better than a resounding gong or, or a clanging cymbal. He says, nothing. I mean, think about that. Take whatever is most exemplary of spirituality to you. What is the mark of a truly spiritual person? And plug it in here, right? Like, if I pray for two hours a day, but I don't have love, I'm nothing. If I volunteer in the downtown east side of Vancouver every week, but I don't have love, it's worth nothing. If I volunteer in every possible capacity in the life of the church, but I don't have love, it's nothing. If I read every Tim Keller book ever written, but I don't have love, it profits nothing. See, when it comes to spiritual gifts, Paul says love is the crucial, indispensable ingredient. Without that, the whole thing falls apart. When I was... Um, First year after uh, graduating from college, the summer right afterwards, me and a couple of friends, we, uh, we lived in a trailer home on campus of this Bible college. And, and I know as soon as I say that, that I lived in a trailer home, that people come up with all kinds of stereotypical images. And in this case, they were mostly probably true, whatever you're thinking about. Point is, three 20-year-old guys living together for the first time, independent living, it didn't go well. We didn't know what we were doing. Uh, for example, there was a washer and a dryer in our, in our bathroom. And uh, we, would, we would run this dryer. We knew how to turn it on. We knew how to put it on a setting. We knew how to put clothes into it. But the thing just never seemed to work well. Like we would, we would run it over and over again. And the clothes just didn't get dry. The, the bathroom would be all steamy and foggy. The dryer itself felt like it was on fire. Again, you'd run it a couple times. You'd take the clothes out and they'd be this hot, steaming, wet pile of garments. We were just con con like convinced that something was deeply wrong with this thing. And then somebody said to us a couple months in, they said, well, are you, are you cleaning out the, the, the filter every time you use it? And we're like, what filter? <laughs> What's a dryer? What, what, where's the filter on a dryer? I mean, I, I realized now, first of all, you open the thing up, I, you wouldn't believe the size of the lint ball in that thing. But we realized now it was an absolute miracle we didn't burn the trailer home down to the ground. It was condemned like a year or two later. It was on its last legs, but, but I'm surprised it didn't go up in flames the way we just, we, we had forgot. We didn't know this one crucial piece of information. And that's how it is sometimes. You know, you can know everything else. But you miss one step. You miss one piece of information. Nothing works. It's the way it is with spiritual gifts. 
Love is the crucial ingredient. If you don't have that, it doesn't work. In fact, it can actually be dangerous. See, Paul, Paul says if, if you do any of these things and you, you don't have love, it's, it's worth nothing. This is, this is the really crucial thing. Not that, not that you have gifts, but that, but that you exercise them with love. Because if you don't, they'll, they'll actually do more harm than good. Think about a pastor who preaches, has this gift to preach and to lead, but doesn't actually love his people or love the God that he preaches about. I mean, what happens years later when all these people have been impacted, have been amazed by this gift, but it comes out later that he's been abusing his people or that he doesn't really have a living relationship with God. Think about the damage that ends up doing. Or somebody who has the gift of speaking in tongues. And, but, but uses this gift boastfully and pridefully, kind of showing off to others. And, and think about the, the way people get turned off from the gospel or turned off from the Holy Spirit because of that. Again, you, you've got to have love. Otherwise, the gifts are useless and perhaps even dangerous. But what is love? What is love? Baby, don't hurt me. Don't hurt me. No, we're not going to go there. No 90s techno music today. What is love, though? Because this word, it gets, it gets used pretty thoughtlessly and carelessly in our world. It gets asked to carry a lot of, a lot of weight, right? So you love burritos and you love your wife. It's the same word, hopefully different meanings. And in our culture especially, we talk about it all the time, but nobody seems to know what it is, Right? You heard the, you've heard the phrase, love is love. We're going we're gonna to hear a lot of that phrase, see a lot of it this month in Greater Vancouver. And I, I understand what they're trying to say, but what is love? Well, it's, it's love, obviously. See, the Greek in Paul's day, the Greek language of Paul's day had a few different words to describe different kinds of love. So uh, storge, for example, was a kind of family love between mothers and their children. Uh, philia love was uh, this kind of warm uh, friendship love. You see it in the, in, the, in the name of the city, Philadelphia. It's the city of brotherly love. You, you see it in the, in the word philanthropy, which literally means love towards fellow humans. Uh, philia love is actually used sometimes in the Bible. So in John chapter 21, Jesus is having this conversation with Peter, and, and Peter emphasizes a few times that he loves Jesus. And the word he uses is, is from the word philia. So he loves Jesus with this kind of uh, friendship, warm, affectionate kind of love. The most common word in the Greek world of Paul's day, though, the most popular word for love was the word eros. And eros was, uh, was actually a Greek, uh, a Greek deity. And, and eros is all about this intoxication kind of love. It's, it's this irresistible pull of one person to another. Uh, it's often sensual, which is why we get the English word erotic from this word. Eros love is, is you just kind of get carried along with it. It's this emotionally driven love. And you may have experienced this kind of love. You have uh, certainly seen it in movies. You see it's promise all over the internet. You could say that Eros is the, uh, the god of Tinder. It may not actually be a supernatural deity out there somewhere, but Eros love, I, I would say, is, is the form of love that people think of most often in our culture when they hear the word love. But the writers of the New Testament, 
when they wrote about the kind of love that God has for us and the love that we are to have for one another, they never use the word eros. They never use the word storge. Only very infrequently do they use the word philia. Almost always, overwhelmingly, they use a different word. They use the word agape. And agape love, as a noun, actually never seems to have occurred in Greek literature before the New Testament. As a verb, it occurred only very rarely, and it meant something like to prefer or to choose. This, was a, this is a decision-oriented love. And for the Greeks, it didn't have any of the power or the magic of eros, and it didn't have the warmth of philia. And so it wasn't really something they talked about. And yet the New Testament writers use it all the time. Why? Well, maybe because using an uncommon word gave the Holy Spirit the ability to fill this word with the content that it needed. But I also think there was something about the meaning of the word itself that drew early believers. Listen, listen to Paul's description of it in verses 4 to 7, and you'll see what I mean. Paul continues on. He says, Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Again, the word that Paul uses here over and over again is the word agape. And you can see how different it is from eros and from other forms of love. Here are a few thoughts in line with this. One of the things that gets lost in our English translation is that every single one of these descriptions in these verses is a verb. They're not adjectives. So even the words that look like it in the English are actually verbs in the Greek. Literally, love patiences. It exercises patience. Love kindnesses. It exercises kindness. Love does not puff up or inflate. That's the more literal translation of, of love is not proud. Love, agape, biblical love, is primarily not an emotion or even a state of mind. It is primarily a choice. It's an action. Now again, eros love is not like that. Eros love is an emotionally driven love that you almost are just kind of swept away by. So people talk about falling in love and falling out of love. And again, I get, I understand that phraseology, but when it comes to agape love, that language is nonsense. Because agape love is not something that you just kind of feel and go along with. It is a choice. It is a decision. The second thing you see here is that agape love is entirely other-oriented. It's focused on benefiting another person. And that as well is different from eros love. Because eros love is actually in the end quite self-centered. It's, uh, it's about me satisfying a hunger or thirst in myself, and I think you can do this for me, right? It's that lustful desire. Eros love is all about me being lifted up. It's what I get out of this. So uh, Katy Perry, a few years ago, she had a breakup, and she admonished people, you've got to love yourself first before you love anybody else. That's kind of the Eros idea. Kim Kardashian was quoted saying, I think you have different soulmates throughout your life that your soul needs different things at different times. Which if you look at Wikipedia articles on different celebrities, it's pretty clear 
A lot of celebrities believe that, that you're going to need a lot of different soulmates throughout the course of your life. That whatever you're, if you're doing something for me now, stick with you. But once that's done, then I'm moving on to the next thing, right? It's all about what I need. But agape love is so different. Because agape love is, is all about what you do for another person. Love protects. Love doesn't envy. Love is patient. Love is kind. These are things that you do for another person. It says it very clearly here. Love, agape love, is not self-seeking. It's not about you. It's about a decision to benefit another person, even when they don't necessarily deserve it. You know, when you look at this passage, it, it strikes me how profoundly countercultural it is today, as well as in Paul's day, on so many levels. I mean, if you think about one of the dominant worldviews of our day, we'll, we'll use the shorthand term woke for it. If you think about the woke worldview, it really doesn't fit with 1 Corinthians 13. This, this worldview that's promoted very, in various ways by our government, academia, and media, does it keep record of wrongs? Absolutely it does. The woke worldview, it cancels people, deplatforms people, doxes people. You don't know what that is? That's when somebody who you disagree with, somebody who you don't really like their position on something, you make their information known publicly so that other people can harass them and bully them. I'm pretty sure that doesn't fit under the category of honoring others. Uh, the woke worldview, as far as I can tell, doesn't, and there's not a whole lot of hope there. It's not a whole lot of trust because you are constantly imputing the worst possible motives to everyone in every circumstance. I don't know very many people who would say that the woke worldview produces patience. Uh, more what I see is, is division and rage and violence and anger, the very things it's supposed to fix. 1 Corinthians 13 just doesn't fit that worldview. Now I know I've been critiquing our culture, which in some ways is, is easy to do, but Probably the bigger thing, the more important thing, is, is to look in the mirror for ourselves here. To take my name and your name and to plug it into this passage instead of love. What happens? What happens when we go, Craig is patient, Craig is kind, Craig doesn't envy, Craig doesn't boast, Craig is not proud, Craig doesn't dishonor others. I mean, I hope that those are true to some extent, but I also know myself well enough that very often I don't act in these ways. And perhaps you're the same. You look at that and you go, it just doesn't fit. Like when you and me, we put ourselves into this. It fits us as well, about as well as my son Zachary fits our, my Winnipeg Blue Bombers uh, football jersey, which is to say, <laughs> not that well, right? But what happens, on the other hand, if we put the name Jesus into this passage? Jesus is patient. Jesus is kind. Jesus doesn't envy. Jesus doesn't boast. Jesus is not proud. Jesus doesn't dishonor others. Jesus is not self-seeking. Well, that starts to fit a lot better. That, that starts to fit like a glove. See, we, we tend to fill this word love with whatever content we want to. It, it's a very flexible word, but, but biblical agape love has a particular content to it. And that content is the character of God in Christ Jesus. The Bible says in 1 John that God is love. That he is the one who gives shape 
to what this word actually means. And the best example of agape love, the the bright, shining embodiment of this, is the cross. The Bible says in Ephesians 1 or 2, Ephesians 2 says that we were dead in our transgressions. There was nothing lovable or attractive about us. There was nothing appealing about us. It's not that God looked at us and went, oh, you guys are so cute. Look at you sitting around down there. We were dead. We were dead in our transgressions. We were dead in the ditch. And through Christ Jesus, God made the decision, the choice to come down in the flesh and to lift us up. We didn't deserve that. We didn't earn that. But that's what agape love is. It's a rugged, committed decision to lift someone up, to benefit another person, even if they don't deserve it. That's what Jesus did for us at the cross. And so when it comes to the gifts, this is our model. Again, it doesn't matter so much what gifts you have as that what, whatever gifts you do have, that you exercise them in this way, in Christ-conforming agape love. Gifts and love. That, that's, the cru- that's the recipe. If you want to be fruitful in the world, if you want to bless others, that's the thing you need to go after. To eagerly desire gifts, but above all else, to have love. Love in, in the Christ-like agape sense. So we've talked about gifts without love. We've talked about gifts and love together. Let's finally talk about love without gifts. Because actually, that is where we're heading. That is our eternal destiny. Just picking it up from verse 8. Paul writes, Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror, Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Now this is the passage, this is the part of 1 Corinthians 13, that when I memorized this as an 11-year-old, I had no idea what we were talking about here. I thought this was the love chapter. What's all the stuff about thinking like a child and looking in a mirror and things passing away? I had no clue. But again, now you do. You understand because of the context of spiritual gifts. That's what Paul is talking about here. All his references are to spiritual gifts. And his big overriding point is this, that these gifts of the Spirit will fade away. Now I've made the point I have made the case that these gifts, all the gifts Paul talks about in this chapter, in in 1 Corinthians 12 to 14, all of them continue to be in operation today. I believe that wholeheartedly. I, I am convinced of that. But the gifts of the Spirit will pass away. One day. They will. They will cease to exist. When completeness comes. Now that is almost certainly a reference 
not to the closing of the biblical canon or the death of the apostles, but to the time when Jesus comes again. When he establishes the new heaven and the new earth, that's when perfection arrives. That's when maturity arrives. That's when completeness arrives, is when Christ comes again. When there's this final judgment and evil is abolished and done away with forever. I mean, later on, Paul talks about how we will see face to face. And and that's how the New Testament describes this eternity, this, this new heavens and this new earth. Revelation 22, for example, uh, Paul, or sorry, John says that God's servants will see his face, God's face. They won't need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light. We're going to see him face to face. Gifts will cease when that day comes. Why? Well, Paul says prophecies will cease. And, and if you think about it, if prophecy is giving a revelation, from God into a particular situation to somebody who doesn't know that otherwise, when everything is made known, when we see him face to face, then there will be no need for that special revelation from one person to another. You know, Jeremiah 31, the prophet says, no longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. Probably alluding to that. We'll all know him. We won't need to speak in tongues. Tongues will cease because we won't need to express these inexpressible words and unintelligible sounds anymore. Instead, we'll be able to express our love, our worship to him, our desires to him in, in a way that everyone will understand. We won't need, we won't need gifts of, uh, of words of knowledge anymore because, again, everything will be made known. Everything will be out in the open. Here's another way of thinking about this. Uh, we've done some of these uh, 24-7 prayer weeks as a, as a church. And my go-to middle-of-the-night prayer walk is to, uh, to walk all the way down Keith Road, all the way to Lonsdale and back. Those are some streets here in North Vancouver. So I walk all the way down. And um, there's one part that really isn't lit at all. And there's like trees and everything on both sides. It's pretty freaky. There's just this flashing green light. It's the most eerie thing. Feels like you're right out of a nightmare because the street lights are just broken or non-existent. But once you get to the top, by Grand Boulevard and on, it's really, really well lit. And so you can walk along the street and you feel confident. You feel safe because everything is so lit up, you know? Uh, and now in the daytime, though, those street lights are unnecessary. You don't need them, right? Who needs a weak sauce artificial light when the dazzling, glorious light of the sun is shining? Which obviously is a, is a hypothetical situation here in North Vancouver where there's no evidence that such a thing as the sun actually exists. But I've heard stories of a bright yellow ball in the sky in other places, so I assume that that's what, that, what the sun is. Anyways, you don't need street lights in the daytime. The spiritual gifts are street lights. Uh, in a world of darkness, where people can't see God, they, they, don't, they don't hear his voice, these spiritual gifts are these streetlights that help, 
help encourage, help strengthen, help light the way, help illuminate things for, for people. They, they are a gift, right? Let's not, let's not lose sight of this. These, these spiritual gifts are a gift from God. We want to desire them. We want to seek after them. But when the daylight comes, when everything is out in the open, when, 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 when we see God face to face, remember Revelation 22, no more night. You won't need the light of the sun, never mind little lamps, because of the presence of God. When that comes, the usefulness of these gifts fades away. See, in the first part of the chapter, Paul talks about the, the, um, the insufficiency of gifts on their own. The gifts are great, but they're not enough on their own. They don't accomplish anything on their own. They need love. Here in the last part of the chapter, Paul says, for as great as gifts of the Spirit are, that they are not permanent. They're not lasting. They are, in fact, temporary. And one implication of this is that it really doesn't make any sense to boast about spiritual gifts, right? It doesn't make any sense to, to boast about them because they're, they're, they're fleeting, it's like um, Notorious B.I.G. Had this, had this song in the 90s where he was rapping about how big of a deal he was. And one of the pieces of evidence he gave was that he, uh, he's got a 50-inch screen and a money green leather sofa. 30 years later, I don't know very many people who don't have a 50-inch screen. And they don't weigh a trillion pounds like Biggie's 90 version did. <laughs> now that screen, you didn't think you were going to get a Notorious B.I.G. reference today, but there you go. Uh, that screen, which was unique and special in the 90s, from the perspective of the future, looks pretty silly to boast about. And so these gifts of the Spirit that we receive, that are a blessing, and they're special, and they're un unique, to, to boast about them, not only does it make, not make sense because they're not from you anyways, but, but it also is silly from the perspective of the future because they have a limited usefulness. But love? Well, love, Paul says, never fails. It endures. At the end of the passage, he says, these three remain, faith, hope, and love. And those three were a common combination in Paul's writings and early Christian preaching. But Paul says there's a hierarchy here. There's one of those that really stands out. He says the greatest of these is love. Now, what we see here is that faith and hope are streetlights as well. If faith, according to Hebrews 11, is certainty about what is unseen, then when everything is seen, then you don't need faith anymore. If hope is a trust in a yet-to-be-realized future, when the future is realized, then you don't need hope anymore. But love, love is going to be our entire mode of relating to one another, and to God forever and ever. I mean, this is the one thing that isn't going to fade away. It's not going to change. We don't just love now and then in eternity. We don't have to anymore. In fact, it's the currency we're going to be trading with to an even greater extent than we do right now. So if you're going to pursue one thing, if you're going to cultivate one character trait, it's this. It's love. Don't just pursue gifts because they'll make you look great. Pursue love because that's the thing you're going to need throughout all of eternity. That's how you're going to be living throughout all of eternity. Now, I want to, I mean, the, the, the calling here, the, the application, the next step is, is pretty clear in some ways. Like, 
love. <laughs> love others. Do the things that 1 Corinthians 13 talks about. Don't envy. You know, don't dishonor others. Instead, protect and persevere and so on. Pretty clear application, especially in the context of the gifts. Whatever gifts you have, exercise them with love. Let that be your whole kind of driving motivation, modus operandi right there. But I want, I want to leave, I want to end with, with a calling back to worship. Because I think we can, we can look at this and feel overwhelmed. How am I ever going to live like this? And we won't. In, I mean, Paul says, we, we prophesy in part, we see in part. The truth is, in, this, in, this, in these bodies, with our hearts, we're only going to love in part as well. So it can feel overwhelming. How are we going to do this? I think one place to go is, is simply to go back to the source. To keep our eyes set on the one who defines and embodies love. Jesus, in in John 15, says, Greater love, agape love, has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. That's true, isn't it? If, If agape love is benefiting others, even if it doesn't do anything for you, then there can be no greater example of agape love than to lay down your life, to literally give up your life for someone else so that they can live. That's, that's, the, that's love, triple black belt, extreme version. But Jesus didn't just say those words. They weren't just a nice idea. Jesus wasn't like a teacher who says a lot of appealing things and pow- powerful things, but never actually gives evidence of them in his, in his life. Jesus lived it out. Romans 15, Paul, or sorry, Romans 5, Paul says, very rarely, Will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die? But God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You are loved, deeply loved by God. This isn't just an emotion. It's not just something that can be true today, but tomorrow he'll feel otherwise. It was a committed, rugged decision exhibited through Christ Jesus, through the cross, as he gave his life for you. You didn't deserve it. You didn't earn it. There's nothing lovable or appealing or attractive. Instead, when you were dead in your transgressions, he lifted you up. That's his love for you. So let his love fill your life. Let his love be where your eyes are set. Let his love fill your understanding, shape your understanding of what love is. Let his love be your inspiration, your empowerment for loving others. In Christ Jesus, God has loved you to an extent that no human ever could. Keep your eyes set on him and say yes to that love. Because some of you perhaps hear this and you know this, but you haven't said yes to him yet. When I proposed to my wife, I had this elaborate scavenger hunt. I went through all of this effort and work. It was very romantic. But what would have happened if she came to me and I asked her to marry me and she said, no, I don't think so. I mean, I will have shown her my love, 
But without her saying yes, doesn't do a whole lot. So I want to encourage you today, if you haven't, to say yes to the love of God in Christ Jesus, to enter into this relationship with him. And if you have, then just to continue coming back to that and letting that shape your view, your life, your heart. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your love, for your love shown to us at the cross, your sacrificial death in our place. Thank you, thank you, thank you, Lord. And I pray, Lord, for all who have been with us today that you will, that you will speak to them and empower them and shape them and form them by your love so that they will love others, so that they will exercise the gifts you have given them with an agape, Christ-conforming love. Let your love fill us to overflowing, O Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for joining us at the Bridge Church in this way. If God has spoken to you through his word, or if you're simply just wanting to reach out to pray, or just wanting to know a little bit more about our church, you can do that through accessing our website. There you can connect with us and also have access to different types of content. We are a church that lives to know Jesus Christ personally and to make him known. We believe that he is the hope of this world and wants to give you your hope as well. We believe that the best news ever has come in and through him. May you know him more and make him known today. We'd love to hear from you.